0: Good morning. And my name is Kondo. For those of you I do not know, I get to serve as one of the pastors here at Mission Point. And uh, this morning, I have the privilege of starting a three week series that we are calling Ever After. And uh, in this series, we are starting to explore the question what happens after you die? What lies beyond. The grave. And uh, I'm not gonna lie to you, I am super stoked and very excited to have this conversation. And I don't think the reason I'm excited to have a conversation about death and what happens beyond is because I'm morbid. Um, I think part of the reason is as a pastor, I think I just get so sick and tired of watching death just walk around strutting its stuff with its shoulders back, just threatening and bullying and intimidating people with all of its mystery and with all of its unknowns and the fact that we know it's coming and we cannot stop it, but we don't know when it's coming. So it terrifies us. And before long, I watch it put us in this position where we feel paralyzed We start to spend more time being afraid of death than we spend time enjoying life, and I think after a little while, I'm just kind of tired of it, and so we want to have a conversation and talk a little bit about death and what happens beyond the grave, what happens after we die. Um... I don't know about you, but I know that the Bible I read tends to suggest that death doesn't get the last say, that death isn't the final analysis. In fact, look at what it says in Hebrews chapter um, 2, verse uh, 14 and 15. This is what it says It says, um, Since the children have flesh, that's us, and blood, he too, Jesus, shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. I love that. It doesn't even just overcome death. He overcomes the one who is death's chaperone, the devil himself. Verse 15, and to free those who all their lives have been held in slavery by their fear of Death. I'm excited to talk about death because I'm sick and tired of seeing the way death just bullies and intimidates us and stirs us to this place of fear. And what it says here seems to suggest that whatever death does, it no longer ought to stir a crippling fear and push us into this corner of paralysis. Now, death is still creepy, don't get me wrong, but it doesn't have to be Crippling. And so we want to talk a little bit um, about it. Uh, growing up, my dad was a magician. And uh, he was an incredible magician, if I may say so myself. And uh, one of the tricks that he would perform so brilliantly was a trick that we referred to as uh, the candy trick. And it was fantastic. Fantastic! My brother and I, you know, I have an older brother and we have three younger sisters. And I remember particularly when my brother and I were growing up that he would perform this magic that left us baffled. Um, But this candy trick was fantastic. My dad would come to us and he would call us to himself and we would quickly um, go to wherever he was. And then he would say, go to your rooms and get your coats. And we would run to our rooms full of anticipation because we had done this enough times to know what was potentially coming next. And that wasn't difficult, third world problems. We only had one coat each, so we knew exactly which one to grab. And so we grabbed those coats and we would assemble in his presence, just eager with anticipation. And then my dad would kind of wave his arms in a super awkward, you know, magic gesture. And then he would say some things that we didn't understand, but... When it was all said and done, he would boom, clap his hands, and then reach in the general directions of our pockets, make some funky noise, and say, check your pockets. And then we would reach into our pockets, and lo and behold, in our pockets would be a mini stash of delicious candy. Now, I should correct myself, because at that stage, all candy was delicious, so that's a little bit of a redundant statement, but regardless… We would find candy in our pockets, and we would just marvel at this. And while we are chomping on God's good deliciousness, we would be staring at my dad just in awe. However, does he do this? He never even touched us. Is he a wizard? We would say to ourselves, and uh, we would actually go around telling our friends that our dad was a wizard with wizardry skills. And we may or may not have used that as an incentive to get them to play with us. Because if you don't play with us, my dad will use his wizardry. And so we would love, we had lots of friends. And we would love watching, like my dad would enter into a room and all of our friends would just stare at him like, Whoa, Brown Gandalf, you know, and they just didn't know what to do with this. It was awesome. Um his wizardry and, and all. Um, I'm, not, I'm not even kidding you, it wasn't until college. I don't know what happened, some night I woke up in the middle of the night and it occurred to me, like, we never checked our pockets. We never checked our pockets! Like, all those years, we went and grabbed our coats, and we never thought to pre-check our pockets just to see if the deposit had been made, and I felt so fooled, so I I reached out to my brother, I'm like, we never checked our pockets, and my brother's like, I'm sorry, dum-dum, you thought that was actually magic, you know, and he broke to me that he had known um, (laughs) for years, and so I was severely disappointed, and so... I'm looking for a new dad. That's really the moral of this story because it was so disappointing. Turns out my dad was just a regular guy, not even a wizard or a magician. How boring is that? Anyway, the point being, uh, something powerful and significant happens when you peel back the veil of mystery and see something as it really is. Something powerful happens in that Scooby-Doo moment when the villain is unmasked and you're like, oh, it was Mr. Smith the whole time. Something about that has the power to free us and what once was daunting and intimidating and overwhelming and terrifying and we stood in awe of may turn out to be, it's just a regular thing. It's just a regular thing. Part of our hope in this conversation is we we want to unmask some of the mystery of death. We want to unmask some of the mystery of what happens beyond the grave. And our hope is that maybe, just maybe, we might take one step in the direction of saying, oh, maybe it isn't as bullying and daunting and scary and threatening as we might have thought it to be for years. So in order to start our conversation, we're going to have a 101 conversation this morning. The basics of what is death? even, according to the Bible. And I'm so thankful we don't have to guess what it is. The Bible does a good job unmasking some of that mystery. And in order to do that, we're going to look at a story um, in Luke chapter 16. You can feel free to turn there. We'll start reading at verse 19. But in this story, Jesus is actually teaching um, and giving us some insight into death and what death Is and so we want to look at this story together, we want to look at this teaching together, and out of that teaching, just draw a few very basic beginning principles as we start this conversation. So Luke chapter 16. uh, If you don't have a copy of the Bible, we will have the verses up here um, on the screen. If you don't own one, it is one of our favorite things to do to give away Bibles. We would love to get one into your hands, believing that this is God's Word. It's living. It is active. It will change us. It will reveal God to us, and it will, reveal, it will reveal us to us as God sees us. But Luke chapter 19, we're going to read through um, this section of Scripture together and then come back and make a number of observations. Luke chapter 16, starting at verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus. Lazarus was covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. And the insinuation in this story is a rich man would not give him the time of day, would not pause long enough to even let him eat the crumbs that fell from his table. Even the dogs came and licked Lazarus's sores. Verse 22, the time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he, the rich man, was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember... That in your lifetime, you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things, and you didn't share with him. But now, he, Lazarus, is comforted here, and you are in agony. Verse 26, and besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to So in this story, uh, we want to make three very basic beginning observations about death. And the first one is this. Death is a disconnection. Death is a disconnection. Verse 22 says this, The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died, and he, the rich man, was buried. Verse 23, In Hades, where he, the rich man, was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. Okay, now, when I read something like this, um, I start to ask questions. It's just the way I approach life. It's the way I approach conversation. It's the way I approach the scriptures. Because I read this and I'm like, wait a minute, wait, was the rich man buried? Or was the rich man in Hades? And it would appear, yep, for sure. Now, to make sense of this, we've got to go back. We've got to go way back and peer in to God's creation. Moment to peer in on the way God created human beings. Now, I would just encourage you, just as a general practice, to periodically go back to Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 and just reread, just revisit the creation account. It is so powerful, so incredible. The way God created the world was just in fabulous, suave style. God created the world by spirit speaking words. That still blows my mind. God would speak and whatever God said would become whatever he spoke. And so you trace the creation account and you look at it. Day one, God spoke. He said, let there be light. And the thing God said came exactly as he spoke it. Light appeared. Day two, God said, let there be water and let there be sky. And there was water and sky. Day three, he said, let there be vegetation. And there was vegetation. And day four, he said, let there be day and let there be night. And there were planets and galaxies and stars and sun and moon because that's what he spoke. Day five, God said, let there be all manner of critter and creature, you know, and it was exactly as he said. But when he got to day six, scratch the record, there was a change up in his rhythm. There was a change up in the way he had been creating up to that point when it was time to create Man, the human being, God changed up his creative cadence. He broke from the pattern. And Genesis chapter 2 gives us a little bit of the detail of what God did on day 6 when it came time to create humanity. And it was phenomenal. This God, who apparently only needs to speak to get whatever he wants on this occasion, day 6, it pictures God getting up from his throne. And then coming down to this earth that he had created. And then rolling up his sleeves and putting his hands in the dirt and going to work. Which immediately raises the question for me, why would the God who only needs to speak work? Because apparently whatever God was making on day six, he wanted his DNA all over it. He wanted his fingerprints on this one. This one was different from everything else. This one was unique. This one was special. This one was prized. This one was intimate. Genesis chapter 2 verse 7. Here's how it describes it. Then the Lord God formed. This is so good. You should read that, underline it, circle it. He didn't speak this one. He formed it a man from the dust, from the dirt, from the mud of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. So out of the dirt, God starts to shape and form and fashion until eventually he has Adam, a human being, a human frame, a human body. Which trips me out that somehow out of the dirt God managed To bring about brain and bring about a heart and bring about flesh and bring about blood and bring about a pancreas, whatever that's for, and bring about some kidneys. He made a human body. And I picture God holding this lifeless body in his hands in the Garden of Eden. And then a fun part, then God leans over and gives Adam some holy raspberries. Did you see that? Where it says God moves his mouth towards Adam's nostrils and he breathes into him. Now, here's the thing about God breathing. God doesn't inhale oxygen and exhale carbon dioxide like we do. When God exhales, he exhales life. So the minute the breath of God touches the frame of Adam... He comes rushing to life. And verse 7 of chapter 2 says he becomes a living being. And no offense to the NIV, but the language literally says Adam became a living soul is the word and the language that it uses. God took Adam's frame, his body, and breathed into him. And he became a living soul. And the idea is that into his body, material body, God breathed an immaterial soul. And Adam came to life. Which, by the way, meant when Adam came to life, he came to life as an eternal being on account of the breath that God breathed into him. And this is what I want us to see from this throwback account. The idea of being communicated is when God created Adam, he made Adam an immaterial soul, an immaterial being housed in a material frame. He made Adam a soul housed in a physical body. That's the picture of him holding flesh and then breathing life into him. And every human being born after Adam is the same way. To be human is to be a soul living in a body. But the reality, by the way, is true for Adam and it's true for you, that the truest essence of who you are, the truest essence, the realestest you, is the soul. It's the immaterial part of you, just as was true for Adam. And so if you study the scriptures, you see the scripture will describe humanity in this way, as we are these immaterial beings, these souls that are carried and hauled around by our physical beings. By the way, let me take a quick aside for those of you who may be theologically uh, nerdy. Uh, You can wrestle through this, think about this at lunch, but it'll make sense to some of you. And for some of you, you can tune me out for a quick second. Um, I am not a trichotomist. I am a dichotomist. And let me simply tell you what that means. I'm not one who believes that man is body and soul and spirit. I believe man is body and soul or body and spirit. It doesn't really matter how you describe it. The point is, I am a body and an immaterial part. Sometimes the Bible calls that immaterial part my soul. Sometimes it refers to it as my spirit. Sometimes it refers to it as my heart. Sometimes it refers to it as my mind. The point is, I am an immaterial being that's being hauled around in a material Body, But that immaterial part is who I really am. That's the part of me that rationally thinks, which the Bible will often refer to as the mind. Um, It's the part of me that emotionally feels, which the, the Bible will often refer to as the heart. It's the part of me that volitionally chooses, which the Bible will refer to as my will or as my strength. I make choices. It's the part of me that relationally interacts, which the Bible will often refer to as my soul, the mingling of souls. The Bible refers to it in different terms, but it's speaking about the realest, deepest essence of who I am, the immaterial part of me, which is the soul, the part of me which, by the way, is most like God who doesn't have a body. And yet he relationally engages with us. He rationally thinks. He emotionally feels. He volitionally makes decisions because after all, it's his breath that is breathed in me. The point is God made us material beings who are being housed in... He made us immaterial beings who are being housed in material bodies. Uh, Look at how Paul says this. So um, poetic. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 1 says, For we know... That if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed. I love that. Like this body is just a tent I live in for now. The real me lives inside. But the tent, this, this thing is just a tent that, that hauls me around. The person next to you technically can't even see you really. I and mean, they can see the tent. And they can make analysis and evaluations about the tent. But the realest you is... On the inside, my body is the shell that hauls my soul around. That is, by the way, why it doesn't matter how much you drink. You cannot fix a broken heart. Because it's not a physical thing. When that jerk betrays and breaks your heart, that's not happening in your body somewhere where you can surgically find it. That's happening in the immaterial part of you that relates to people and trusts people and ends up being wounded by people and feeling rejected by people. That's the essence of who I really am. You are a soul in the body. Death is a disconnection. The word death in the Bible literally means separation. It literally means disconnection. Why? Because when the Bible speaks about death, it is talking about the moment when my body and my soul break up. It's talking about the moment when the material part of me and the immaterial essence of who I am separate. They go separate ways. When my soul or my spirit, whatever, leaves my body, the Bible would describe that as the moment of death. It is disconnection. Jesus says, the rich man was buried in the ground, but he went to Hades, Both of those things are true because in the moment of his death, he experienced disconnection. He experienced separation. His body went one way and his truest essence went somewhere else. His soul went some place else. That's death. It's separation. And our bodies will return to the dust whether you're buried or whether cremated, they eventually get reabsorbed into the dirt from which God formed them. That's what happens to the body. And that's why you hear this verse quoted at, at funerals. Ecclesiastes 3, verse 20. It says, all go to the same place physically. All come from dust and to dust all return." Our bodies return to the dust, but our souls leave their shell and return to sender. They return to God, Ecclesiastes 12, 7. And the dust returns to the ground. This is a separation that it came from. And the spirit, notice it uses spirit here, returns to God who gave it. In the first place, that's separation. And both Lazarus and the rich man experience this disconnection of body from soul. That's what death means. Now, again, growing up, I never thought about this um, in, in this way. Um, and you hear people talk about death as just this sleep, it's where we just kind of ease into this state of complete unawareness and unconsciousness. And the Bible will never describe death as that. Your body may go to sleep and decay, but your soul is an eternal reality that lives on and moves into the next sphere, which is part of the other thing we observe in this Passage that death is not just a disconnection, but death is a doorway. Death is a doorway. Our soul disconnects from our body and it returns to God. And here's the thing don't don't miss this, this is pretty key. Our souls will return to God, and when they get to God, in a moment, God makes a decision about which one of two doorways the soul is going to go through. But when I die, returns to God, and then God makes a decision about which of two doorways my soul will go through, leading to one of two destinations. That's what it means in Hebrews 9 27 um, when it says, just as people are destined to die once and then after that to face the judgment. That's the moment my soul is back in God's hands and he makes a decision which doorway the soul goes through. And my soul is either going to go through the doorway to heaven, which was true about Lazarus, or it's going to go through the doorway to Hades which was true about the rich man. We see that in the story, right? Verse 22, Luke 16. The time came when the beggar died and the angels, apparently that's who did this, um, walking him through the door, carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and he was buried, his body was But in Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So Abraham's side is a picture of heaven, the place where Abraham went after he died, the doorway through which Abraham walked into the glorious presence of God where there is bliss unspeakable. And then Hades, where the rich guy goes, is a place of torment unimaginable, away from the presence of... God. Death is a doorway. And and this is true, not just for the rich man, not just for Lazarus, not just for Abraham. It is true for every single one of us who are sitting in this room. And it's true for every single person that we know and love, that when we die, death becomes a doorway that takes me to one of two destinations. It's heaven or it's Hades it's in the presence of God or it is away from the presence of God. It's in unspeakable bliss or it's in unimaginable torment. But that's true for every single one of us. We will all by virtue of the fact that we are souls, we are ultimately immaterial beings, we will all live forever. The only question is through which door am I going to go? But we also learn, um, the third thing in this text here, is that death is a deadline. No pun intended. Death is a Deadline. Death is a line drawn in the sand after which my eternal fate is sealed. It's a deadline. Death is a moment after which it is too late to do anything about which door I end up going through. It's an irreversible deadline. Again, Hebrews chapter 9 verse 27, that's what this means. There's people are destined to die once and after that, after that to face the judgment because death ushers me into an era, a phase of judgment where I go through one of two doors. And if there's any question, Jesus reiterates that in the story he tells Because in this powerful and and tragic story, the rich man realizes where he is, realizing the torment of his soul situation, he starts to immediately try to do what? To reverse the situation. He tries to pick the other doorway, but he cannot because it's too late. And in fact, he's told in verse 26... Besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set, literally locked into place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot. It is not possible to go from door one to door two, from Hades to heaven, impossible. Nor can anyone cross over from us to there because death is a deadline after which it is too late. Church, that is why we exist to invite everyone everywhere to life in Christ. Because we understand that the people around us, once they cross the threshold, once they walk past the deadline, it is too late for anything to happen. Their eternal fate is set. They are going through one of two doors. And nothing can be reversed after they die. But what we know is a reversal can happen on this side of death's doorway. And so we make it our ambition to share with as many people as possible the life and the hope. That's why you've heard Charlie and you've heard Matt from this um, stage the last number of weeks share that it is so critical for us to figure out how to use our influence and to use our respective platforms to share with people the reality of the hope of Jesus Christ because beyond the grave, There is no reversing it. In fact, if you keep reading this sad story, the rich man starts to beg. When he realizes it's irreversible, he starts to beg. And it's so interesting and so sad, he starts to plead with Abraham. He says, okay, I realize I'm stuck here, but would you please do me a huge favor? Would you please send someone to go back and warn my family and beg the people I love so they never have to walk through this door into this destination? He realizes, can you please send hope and can you please send help to the realm before the deadline, before it is too late while they still have time. Death is a disconnection. Death is a doorway. Death is a deadline. And if those things are true, then it ought to affect the way we think. It ought to affect the way that we live and the way that we respond. And a couple of responses, and the one I just alluded to a moment ago, is as a church, if this is true, we have got to be about proclamation. If death is a deadline, if death is a deadline, And there is no coming back from it. It means that that we have got to make it our ambition to share with people while there is still time. That Jesus is the only hope, He is the only door that leads to life in heaven with God, bliss forever. And I'm just saying to you that if there is someone you know that you do not want to see in Hades, you better share hope with them. It's the only way. Now again, if there's no one, you're like, eh, I don't care where they end up. Okay. Okay. It would be sad, especially if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, who yourself have been rescued. But if there's anyone you look at and you say, I don't want you to end up where the rich man ended up. I don't want you to to, to go through door number two towards Hades. The only way is to share hope with them, to share Jesus Christ himself with them. Romans chapter 10 verse 14 says, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? How can the 50,000 in our county call on the one they've not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard, Jesus? And how can they hear without someone proclaiming to them, someone preaching to them? We want as a church to be a movement of proclaimers. We want to be a movement of people who are shouting as loud and as often as we can. There is hope in Jesus proclamation. But the second response is is preparation. The best response to a deadline is preparation. Um, I was not a good college student. And um, man, it was just it was crazy. I just did not apply myself the way I should have. And it occurred to me, by the way, when I got to the deadline. And uh, I was sitting in a row next to people, and I'm looking at them like, oh, what's that cool like? goldish, yellowish cord around your neck. I want one. Ooh, matches my shoes, you know. And, um, and it was too late. It was too late. The deadline had passed. The time for me to apply myself had gone. Now we are just sitting, and I was just standing in my little doorway. But I just did not apply because I missed the fact that the time to get ready for a deadline... It's before the deadline. It is the most appropriate thing to prepare. Um, And that is true for us. If death is a deadline and you are still breathing air, it means you still have time. You don't know how much time you have, but what you do know is you have this moment right now. That is true for you. That is true for the people that you love. At least I have this moment to prepare for it. Now, I can choose to panic about death, but the more appropriate response is to prepare for it. I'm sitting here, and it was so exciting for me to think about talking about this because I'm realizing, Lord, if we're alive and breathing and talking about death, it means we have every opportunity to do everything necessary to be prepared for that deadline. And preparation for the deadline has a name. Jesus, he's the one who determines what we do with Jesus, determines which door God sends us through after the deadline has come. John 3, 16, the most well-known verse in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, Jesus, that whoever believes in him, Jesus, shall not ever have to worry about Hades, who we'll never have to worry about perishing, will never have to worry about going through the door away from God, but shall have eternal life. It's that simple. And how good is God? Wait, God, you're telling that my eternal faith is sealed based on believing in Jesus? Absolutely, that's it. That's all I need to do to be prepared for the deadline, to get the cords and everything? Yep, it's what you do with the person of Jesus Christ. And I love what's described about his work in, in one of our favorite verses around Mission Point, 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him, Jesus, who had no sin... To be sin for us so that in him, Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. I love that verse. Again, it's just this this reminder, this reality that all of us have sinned and all of us have messed up. And because we sinned, we got sentenced to go through the door towards Hades, away from God. Every single one of us on account of the fact that we couldn't measure up to God's standard of perfection. God pronounced a verdict that all of you are sentenced to eternal death apart from me, but in his mercy, God made a way. He sent Jesus, and when Jesus came to this world, Jesus lived the life that we couldn't. He lived up to the standard that we could never reach, that we could never attain. And then he died the death that we should have because we messed up and because we sinned. And then he rose from the dead to offer us the life that we could never have achieved on our own. And then the Bible says all you need to do is believe that Jesus has taken your place. He's reached perfection for you, and he's taken punishment for you, and he's risen from the dead to offer you free and full forgiveness. And all you need to do is say, I can't do it, I can't fix myself, I can't clean myself, but Jesus, I put all of my faith and all of my trust in you, believing that you can... And the moment I put my faith and belief in him, God says, your eternity is sealed. And then what starts to happen is death now just becomes a doorway. And I'll tell you something about doorways. I don't tend to be scared of them. Especially if doorways are leading me into a blissful, glorious place. I love to open those. Now, again, I'm not suggesting that I'm rushing towards the grave. But what I am saying is once I realize that I have put my faith in and I've been forgiven by the one who has overcome death, then death becomes just a doorway. It just becomes an entrance into my bliss ever after. And I love that in his grace, that's all the preparation I need. And so I don't know where you stand this morning or where you sit this morning. I don't know um, where you are with Jesus, what you've done with Jesus. But if you've never put your faith in Jesus as the only one who can forgive you of your sins and make you right with God and seal your eternal destiny towards heaven, if you've never put your faith in him, the fact that you're breathing tells you you have this moment to make that act of preparation. And the assurance of what happens next. And I would invite you, this is the day, this is the moment for you to put your faith in Jesus. What would you wait for? Why would you procrastinate? Why would you say, man, I'll move it and see maybe later on. You have no idea how many more of these moments you get before the deadline. Because we don't know when the deadline is. He hasn't told us. And let me say this too, really, really clearly. I'm not asking you if you've been good enough. You cannot be good enough for him. I'm not asking you if you've gone to church all your life. Church cannot save you. Church cannot change your eternal destiny. I'm not asking if you've served for years. I'm not asking if you read the Bible. I'm not asking if you're a moral person who tries to do the right thing. I'm not asking if you're an optimist who happens to think positive thoughts. None of those things can save only Jesus Christ and the fact that he came and lived and died and rose from the dead. That's it. So you may have been in the church or around the church or in a Christian college for years and years, but you know you have never said, to Jesus, I am putting my trust in you and asking you to forgive me of my sins and make me right with God. This is the day, and you can see why I'm so excited about a series in which we get to debunk death because there's one who has overcome death if we would only put our faith in him. I'm going to have the band come back out. Um, They'll lead us in one more song. And um, even as they do that, I just want to invite you to just pray a simple prayer to Jesus. Jesus, I know I've messed up and I cannot fix it. And I'm asking you to forgive and save me. That's it. And if you need someone to pray that prayer with, in fact, if the elders are here, if you guys would stand and please start making your way towards the front. Um, and if any of our small group leaders are here and you guys are willing to come up front, just so people can have someone uh, to, to, to pray with. That if you want to pray that prayer with someone or you aren't sure where you stand with God and you want to come and pray with, with somebody, we would invite you to, to do that even as this last song is um, is happening. If you say, I've just been crippled by fear, it's not always death necessary, but I live so afraid that I don't actually live, would love for you to come up and pray with somebody who could just pray and agree with you that the Lord would start to free you of that and fill you with hope maybe there's someone you've been burdened by and you just want to see them come to faith because you don't want to see them end up where the rich man ended up and you just want to pray for the grace of God on their lives I'd encourage you come and pray with somebody have that somebody agree with you as well and maybe it's something that has nothing to do with anything I share the power of prayer is greater than the list I make So whatever you'd love to see the Lord do, if elders would start coming up and small group leaders, if you guys would come up um, as well, and even as this song is happening, I would encourage you, feel free to come up, uh, pray with somebody, but most importantly, do your business with the Lord himself. So let's sing, let's pray, let nobody walk out of this room without the preparation of putting their faith in Jesus. Amen? Amen. Amen.